1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, the host of the Critical Theory Channel. We're glad to have Professor Simon Critchy with us today. Simon needs no introduction. He is the Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at New School for Social Research. His work engages in many areas, continental philosophy, philosophy and literature, psychoanalysis, ethics, and political theory, among others. His most recent books include problem with levinas the abc of impossibility the faith of the faithless experiments in political theology and he has written on topics as diverse as david bowie religion football and suicide today we'll be talking to him about his new book called bald 35 philosophical sketches published by yale university press simon welcome to the show and thank you for making time for us Thank you very much, Mortes. I'm very happy to be here. Well, it's customary to ask our guests about uh, a little about their biography. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little about yourself, where you were born, where you grew up, and how you became interested in philosophy.
0: I was born in, um, in Hertfordshire, in England, about 30 miles north of London. And uh, But my family are all from Liverpool. I was the only member of my family in wasn't born in Liverpool. Liverpool was always considered to be home, and there's a lot more to say about that. but um, so I grew up in the south of England, but thinking that the North was home, and there's a big cultural difference between the South and the north and then um, I don't know I had a yeah I, was, I wasn't a very good student at all. I left school with one O level in geography when I was sixteen. I went to a catering college because it was next door to the school that I was uh, I was at I was I was a bad student and I, I was playing in in bands I was uh, you know sure that I was going to be a pop star and um, so it was just a matter of time until that happened in my you know youthful arrogance and that didn't happen and then uh, I had a very bad accident when I was about 18 and that's another long long story but it seemed to shift something in my uh, way of looking at the world and myself and I began to read um, obsessively and then when I was about 20 I went back to what in the US would be a community college like a local a local college and uh, did some remedial qualifications and then I was about 21 someone said to me you should apply to university which i did i was going to do literature because that was what i thought i was interested in um particularly modernist literature and then i when i was at university university of essex i did a philosophy class as my fourth option in my first year and it you know it blew me away i was taught by this uh, brilliant man called jay bernstein who I'm still a colleague of, strangely enough, after all these decades, and I decided that philosophy was more interesting than the study of literature, although literature is very dear to my heart. And so I then did philosophy, and all my degrees were in philosophy, but um, I've always had a strange relationship to the discipline of philosophy. So I think of myself as a, a sort of a marginal figure, although I've always earned my crust uh, as a day job teaching philosophy in the philosophy department which is where i am to this day at the new school for social research in new york and i've been here for i worked out last night actually i've been here for 18 years and um that's uh, quite a long period of time (laughs) thank you you mentioned liverpool we're
1: going to talk about football in our conversation as well and also literature because I know it's very dear to your heart and you do make a lot of references to Greek uh, plays and, and and Shakespeare in your works as well. Yes. But uh, let us start with the, the book. Uh, this book is a collection of articles you wrote for New York Times over a period of a decade, I guess. Yes. So can you tell us how did this book come about? And I'm really interested in the title of the book, which is actually a testimony to your great sense of humor as well. And in the book, you recount this story, um, this joke that your dad used to recount, and then you yeah. go on to make the distinction between two meanings of bald. So I was, gonna, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, talk about that.
0: I certainly can. I mean, the joke, which I'll, I'll tell you because my father has uh, very few favorite jokes, he used to tell them over and over again, and uh, the joke is I never left my house as a child. My family was so poor that my mother couldn't afford to buy his clothes. When I was 10, my mother bought my mother bought me a hat so I could look out the window. And my dad used to love telling that joke. And there's another joke about Christ that he liked to tell. And he'd fall about laughing. And um the uh the boldness in the book was um, you know, it's both a, a you know, it's a conceit. it's it's both a reality. I am I am bald. And uh, I, I tell the story of uh, how i how I went bald in the book, and there's you know there's that that's just funny in the sense in which people feel that uh, baldness is something that can be pointed out and um, in a way that is not the case with other physical attributes, let's say. And then I began to think about baldness as um, speaking boldly, speaking um, speaking straightforwardly without. Uh, without kind of academic comb overs and uh, uh, rhetorical toupees and wigs, but sticking your head, your kind of naked bald head out of the window and speaking, and then seeing what happens. And I think it's um, and it's that second sense which is more which is more important. So the book is, you know, in a sense, it's it's a record of how I've learnt to stick my head out of the window and think in public in a newspaper and although this isn't really grasped in the same maybe it is now but it wasn't uh when i before i came to new york i mean how important the new york times is to people in the united states particularly liberals and uh, it's it's incredibly important kind of organ and um we managed to get uh, a philosophy column in a in the New York Times, which was on what they used to call the website when back when websites were things that newspapers had. But the real action was in the newspaper, the print newspaper. And on the website, I began to work with this man, Peter Catapano, who remains a very close friend of mine. And we began this idea of trying to do a philosophy column. And um, it went through, you know, all sorts of permutations in instead of trying things out. And then I'd write um, a few pieces a year, um, sometimes more, sometimes less. And then, you know, and then this went on for about 11 years and um, I put them all together into a book and the book is called Ball. So the board is the, 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 the the book is these 35 pieces I've written over 11 years on, on disparate themes, but I didn't, they're not journalistic in the sense in which that well, rather they're not, um, I'm not political commentator, and I'm not, uh, I have no special knowledge of economics or anything like that. I, I saw the pieces as ways of, of sort of getting away with experimental types of writing, writing on strange themes, looking at philosophical topics from a, you know, a kind of oblique angle. And then um, we were lucky enough to get an audience and also to get a lot of writers uh, involved in the stone. And we had a a lot of fun for a a number of years and um, it's, it's come to an end now, but it was great fun for as long as it lasted.
1: Thank you. As you right to mention, there are a lot of interesting topics that you touch upon, both in the book and, of course, during the last decade that you wrote for New York Times. And I'm uh, particularly interested in my uh, in the uh, in that famous article, "The Gospel According to Me," which is one of my favorite ones, and I guess one of the most famous ones. And that is where you 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 critique this whole idea of happiness or happiness industry or self help industry because you liken it to a religion in a way without, without a God. And it's, it's this search for authenticity, which has alienated people from one another. And I find it quite intriguing um, because I, I, my understanding of it was that it is creating a kind of a, center, a cult of individuality or individualism, which is making people, as you have rightly mentioned, more passive. So can you um, expand that point, please?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's well, the gospel according to me, it's in a sense that it's about everybody is a me and uh, everyone's individual spiritual journey which they're meant to be on, and uh, and how that often links together with um, all sorts of things. But you know, a certain triumph of uh, triumph of the therapeutic, as Philip Reeve might have said. Uh, a kind of interest in spirituality but a spirituality which is not very demanding and very kind of soft in a way all pervasive and soft um and uh you know it's and it induces in my view a kind of um passive nihilism in the sense and the, the term i borrow from Nietzsche from some um uh, Posthumously published remarks by Nietzsche, where passive nihilism is what he calls. He calls it European Buddhism, which is the idea that um, that having realised that everything means nothing, we uh, we kind of embrace that nothing. We feel terrified by it, but we're kind of plunged into it. And we, in a world which is uh, chaotic and out of control, and where there is no where there is no God, in that strong say, you know. Christian sense of a God, or any of the three um, Abrahamic faiths, that sense of a God, we uh, we focus on ourselves and try to make ourselves into a little island of peace and tranquility and calm. And the self-help industry is kind of fed off that. And the piece that um, the piece that uh, I wrote, as you mm-hmm. co-wrote it with uh, with my ex-wife Jameson Webster, was. Um, was you know we had this idea for a book called Against Buddhism that didn't really go anywhere because we didn't really have a good I- idea for it but we were against this kind of weak all-pervasive idea of spirituality which we and I f- find selfish self-serving and induces feelings of intense moral superiority whereas the, i guess my attraction to um the Abrahamic faiths, to call them that, and in particular Christianity, is the fact that we, you know, we begin with an idea of ourselves as broken and uh, lost and everybody else is broken and lost and in in need of forgiveness and uh, mercy and uh, with the capacity to repent. And in this new kind of gospel, according to me, that is is singularly absent. You're meant to be kind of uh, on it, all the time at your best, being the best that you can be, and it's um, it's uh, it's also a, an ideology which has had real effects on how people how people work, how people think, and all sorts of things. It's a yeah. So the, the the essay is a little slice of what was going to be a larger project which was abandoned. It's a lot of fun though.
1: I like that idea of uh, Buddhism that you mentioned because uh, mm-hmm. re- it, it has the whole oriental spirituality has been turned into a market yes. and, as, and and i love that phrase that you've used in your book which is and it's this sort of authenticity is an evacuation of history yes. and uh, you go on and i think this has also been further intensified by the corporate lifestyle as well because we all work in big corporates and they have these mental health programs and they invite their employees you know to do yoga and i read an article some time ago called new liberal yoga which was fascinating <laughs> and uh, you're going to make this distinction uh about work and non-work in that uh, in that article so that's another interesting point that i'd like to um uh, i'd like you to speak a little bit more about what is work and non-work and how has this corporate culture blurred the line between the two
0: yeah, well, I, I was um, at a certain point about. I guess this is a was published in twenty thirteen. It must have been, you know, germinating in the previous few years. But I was um, going to a you know uh, one time at, to business schools, particularly in the UK, to give talks and critical management studies conferences and things like this. And it was a very confusing world. But I began to read a lot about about what they were up to and. Um, One person I met who was at the University of London at the time was Peter Fleming, who wrote a really interesting book on on work. And in particular, the way in which the informalization of work, in the sense in which work used to be something that you didn't want to do. It was a curse. Labor is a curse. And um, labor is a curse. It's a consequence of sin. And in paradise, we will not work. Right. That's that's the standard view. And so you work. You don't want to. You have to to make money in order to rest and uh, that whole picture has fallen away in the last decades. And um, the workplace has become steadily informalized, you know, uh, where the distinction between work and non-work has, has uh, been systematically kind of broken down. And uh, where work is seen to be the expression of who you are, expression of your, your authentic individuality rather than just something you do to make money. And that um, and that's had you know terrible effects. I think it's it's led to uh, you know if 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 you lose your job, say, it's not the fault of the company that has sacked you. Uh, it's your own fault because you weren't a good enough person. You weren't creative enough. Right. So there's also a link between work and non-work and the valorization of things like creativity, which is um, which is also particularly nauseating in the idea of young creatives as as workers and w- workers as young creatives and and it's also you know and it's um and it's it, it it's a it's a worldview that invites uh, cynicism <laughs> to say the least and it invites uh that people just to lie about what they do at work and what they think about their work and and so on and so forth so i think it's um this this ideology of authenticity pervades every aspect of our lives and in particular this would be a separate topic uh, our online lives you know our social media selves and that's uh, that's terrible and exhausting and draining <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah thank you for the comments um it's just a rumination now but because uh, we are all trapped in this kind of work ethics and this kind of lifestyle most of us at least
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and as you have right to mention it induces this cynicism or passivity what is the way out of it what is our responsibility as individuals is there any is it all dark and gloomy or is it any possibility for 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 liberation let's say for a true authenticity where it can lead to action because all these kind of new lifestyle is also part of the new way the economics is working with the new liberal economy
0: Right. I think you've got to, it, it's, you've got to really to turn this, you know, to turn this Titanic around is going to be really, really difficult. And I don't really necessarily believe in things like liberation. Um, I think, you know, there can be liberation through forms of uh, of activity, like reading books and making them your own or educating yourself and making that your own. That's a kind of liberty. But um, I'm cautious about the valorization of uh, freedom in the sense in which, um, you know, I think it was Matthew Arnold who said that uh, freedom is a, or liberty is a good horse to ride, but you've got to ride it somewhere. And um, so I'm maybe a bit too suspicious of, of liberty. Can anything be done? I don't know. I think in, uh, I mean, my, my view is that human beings are uh, fundamentally decent. That's that's my that 's my choice that's my faith, as it were. I think that human beings are fundamentally all right, and they're made wicked by the circumstances in which they find themselves. Those circumstances can really twist things and turn them into uh, creatures which they're not, but they'll 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 force themselves to be in order to survive in a difficult situation. so I do believe in you know decency, and I believe that in in small small groups in small scale uh forms then you know you can you can manage forms of life which are less destructive and that used to that used to lead me um in years gone past to be much closer to the anarchist tradition which is you know The great thing about the anarchist tradition is it's a tradition of failure, uh, a tradition of of great ideas which have just never been allowed to work because they've been crushed by the people with the guns and the sticks, usually. But the idea of anarchism as a uh, small-scale... Not really a politics, a small-scale way of life, like a moral way of life. I do think such things are possible in certain conditions. Uh, I think it gets harder and harder, and uh, I think... Uh, but there's a tendency. I think if you let, I guess this 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 sounds a bit romantic, but I think at least in 2020, I think, and maybe for bits of 2021, I was struck by uh, I was struck by you know, numerous examples of human decency in relationship to the bad situation that we're in with with COVID, and uh, and when people weren't told what to do or told something. They didn't want to, whatever it might be. There was all these examples of little, little forms of life erupting and people doing, uh, acting well with each other um, and behaving, behave, behaving well with each other. So that I believe in. I don't believe in any grand narratives of, uh, of liberation, um, in particular uh, Marxist versions of that, which have, I've been kind of uh, plagued with in my whole academic Whole academic life, but that'd be a, a separate topic. But I do think that human beings are basically all right, and they find themselves in a rough situation and they need a bit of forgiveness and a bit of help.
1: Thank you. Um, I think this is a perfect segue to my next question, which is about the next article, or then let's say the next next sketch, which is uh sketch number five. Abandon nearly all hope. Okay. And uh, there you're very critical of this idea of um, hope or let's say the audacity of hope which was a motto picked up by barack obama and you call hope in this respect a moral cowardice i'm just quoting from your a more moral cowardice that allows us to escape reality i'm a pessimist myself so i love that chap that that sketch so and then there you also go on to make a distinction between this christian idea of hope and the ancient greek conception of hope which is the one yes. that you prefer so tell us why you think hope is a in this sense, is moral cowardice that, that allows us to escape reality and then the distinction between Christian yeah, and ancient Greek.
0: It's the idea of a kind of blind hope, you know, that the which goes back to really to figures like St. Paul when he says that we have to hope uh, we have to hope for what we do not see. Right? We have to hope uh, blindly, as it were, that if the Trinity of Christianity is faith, love, and hope. And hope is, in a sense, hope for what we cannot see and what will, what will, certainly uh, never happen. So that idea of an excessive uh, dependence on hope, I think, um, is uh, you know is 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 mendacious. And the way in which, but that uh, at the religious level, that's one thing. At the political level, I think it becomes even more egregious that I think I quote Napoleon who said you know a leader is a dealer in hope Um, and you know this is true and so what I saw here in the United States with Barack Obama was the political mobilization of the religious idea of hope for political ends which were it turns out I mean incredibly cynical it was using the the legacy of that the memory of that Christian rhetoric um, and um, and you know, allowing people to endure uh, endure for longer than they should do the kind of torments to which they've grown accustomed. So, I mean, Nietzsche says uh, somewhere. I mean, the this article is is one of the very Nietzschean arguments in in the Nietzschean articles in the book. And Nietzsche is uh, against Christianity. He's against uh, Platonism, and um, he's against against hope, but what he's in favor of is, is courage, courage in the face of reality. So I think that's a, quite an interesting suggestion, that if we get rid of this hope, which in Nietzsche's words uh, is the evil of evils because it prolongs man's torment by bringing, uh, by clinging to hope what makes the suffering worse. So hope doesn't assuage suffering, hope extends suffering by prolonging our uh, torment. In place of that, we could think about something like courage and um i think that would be a start now with the ancient greeks i mean the um i mean they had a different view of of hope that hope was and there's this fascinating story uh in thucydides in the the peloponnesian wars text where he talks about the the melians who were inhabitants of an island uh in the in the aegean and the Athenians turn up and there's this negotiation It's called the Melian dialogue. It's very famous. And the, the Athenians say, you know, we're, we're here. We've got, we've got the guns and the sticks submit, or we will destroy you. And um, the Melian leaders try to prevaricate. They try to say, well, we need to talk about this some more. We need more negotiations. And, uh, eventually, uh, and then they say, well, uh, we can't agree to what you're saying because, uh, well, and we can still hope for a better outcome. And then the Athenians say, well, you, you, if you believe in that prodigal hope, you will be destroyed, which is indeed what happens. They, they refuse to submit. They don't consult the people. The, pe- the leaders don't consult the people and the millions are massacred. And the lesson of the story in many ways is that we, um, we need to understand and give up prodigal forms of hope and adopt a more modest, realistic attitude which corresponds more closely to actually what human beings do in situations of, of crisis. So that the, the way in which hope is uh, mobilised, I think, is fraudulent. And what I try to offer in the, um, in the article is, a, is an idea of thinking without hope, which is not, you know negative or uh, bleak it's actually uh, cheerful and affirmative and realistic and um, that's what i wish we could we could get to a kind of courageous hopelessness a courageous cheerful comical hopelessness would be at least a start right in my view and and that's your alternative which you call skeptical
1: realism informed
0: by history yeah I mean, yeah, I mean, that's I mean, that's a view which is it's it's, you know, I'm I'm not the first to argue that. I mean, people like, um, let's say, David Hume and many others have argued that in the past that I mean, philosophy can do a certain number of things. It can it can it can Um. it's very good at detecting all sorts of errors and fallacies and arguments and so on and so forth. But once you've done that, once you've written your treatise on human nature, then the task becomes one of uh, the reading of literature, history, and politics. And those three things together can give you a a more balanced sense of what might be possible. So I think the the problem, many of the problems that we seem to um, endemically have as as a species are bound up with forms of delusive hope. Um, The pandemic in relation to that is actually quite interesting. You know, the way in which, positive and negative forms of hope have worked on both sides. Uh, an overestimation in how much we should hope in science and then an overestimation in how science can be wrong, right? With the anti-vaxxers, in a sense, I think what the, the pandemic showed us, I think, is how, uh, how, mod- how modest, minimal, incremental science is as is 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 an activity and how it can help but we have to give up these huge grand narratives and uh, work much more steadily and carefully.
1: Thank you. When I read that article, I was reminded by the wonderful book which was written by the late uh, Lauren Berlin, Cruel Optimism. She was also very uh, critical of this idea of hope and optimism that is created. But anyway, that's a different story.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, th- I mean, I'm, 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 yeah, I, I, yeah, I think optimism is cruel. I think it's, um, I mean, pessimism is is at least less cruel. You're not feeding people delusions which they're going to cling to against uh, and then have lead disappointed uh, lives defined by suffering. You're giving them at least a a more, you know, reasonable assessment of what's possible. So it's optimism. This is, again, where I'm much, I'm I'm close to Nietzsche in in temperamentally. um, Optimism is the is the problem. And that's, that's what we get ultimately from, from Christianity and from Socrates. And that's what we have to really challenge. And so the ancient Greeks, to that extent, whether they existed or not, and they did, but the, whether they existed or not, they can hold up a kind of um, a black mirror to ourselves, uh, which allows us to see things in a, in, a, in a clearer way and we can move along. Thank you. Um, Let's talk about the role of philosopher.
1: That is, I guess that's always been argued for centuries. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, that's one of the sketches in your book as well. And you start by saying that philosophers have usually been ridiculed for their disregard for worldliness. And I love that uh, comparison that you make between a lawyer and a philosopher in ancient Greece. So tell us about that. And then what? what is the role of philosopher in 21st century?
0: Well, I mean, that was, that was the question that, you know, uh, I had to ponder. We had this idea for a, this series, a philosophy column in the New York Times, and um, we were given the green light by uh, the, the person that ran opinion, and we thought, great, so how do we do it? How do we start? And so I, Peter thought I should write the first piece, so I thought about it. I thought about it long and hard. Because it, you know, it should have been, you know, what is philosophy and what can it do and how can it lead you to a, a happy life and blah blah blah. But I thought, no, no, let's, let's take it a different way. Let's look at the figure of the philosopher um, and see, you know, where that can take us. And uh, and also at that time, um, by chance, uh, I was working with someone who uh, was was reading Plato's dialogue, the Theaetetus, and in this text the theotesis there is this what's called um what's it called it's called a a digression that's right a digression because they don't know what it is it's not a digression but they call it a digression because it's not the argument doesn't flow seamlessly in this digression uh socrates talks about the philosopher and he says the philosopher is someone who thales being the first philosopher historically thales Um, falls into a ditch and the Thracian serving girl girl laughs at him. So philosophy begins with somebody falling into a ditch because they're looking at the stars and and that being a source of of comedy. So the philosopher is a kind of buffoon, uh, a fool, um, an absent-minded comic figure, a bullshit artist, as Mel Brooks would have said in History of the World Part One. And this, this article got a lot of heat I got a lot of heat for this and it was really really rough because the philosophical establishment uh came after me and um it really was unpleasant and thanks to my editor he was able to kind of uh force me to kind of keep my head down not look left or right and we kept we kept moving on but i was ready to give up on the basis of a response to that because the the idea there, and I wasn't making anything up, this is just, this was Plato, right? So it's not exactly you know wildly radical, but the idea that the philosopher is a fool, kind of a buffoon. And, um, and Socrates makes this distinction between the philosopher and the lawyer uh, based on this very simple idea that a lawyer is someone who takes time. Sorry, sorry, a lawyer is someone who has no time and who you pay for their time. So you pay a lawyer by the minute or by, by the hour that's the way the law works. The philosopher, by contrast, is someone who takes their time, right, who can't speak to the clock. And in the Athenian context, uh, which was a very litigious society, uh, people spoke to the clock. The clock was a water clock, a, a klepsudra. And, uh, and Socrates failed to speak to the clock, and as a consequence, he was tried, found guilty of impiety, and was um, and was killed by the city of Athens. So, philosophy is also a dangerous activity. Philosophy, philosophy is a kind of is folly, is uh, is is a taking of time, and it has consequences. Philosophy can can kill, right? And I think that's a, that's a that, that's an important point because uh, why this taking of time and this this folly, this ability to invert. Uh, to subvert the um, the opinions of the day, whatever they happen to be, and whoever is in authority whoever happens to be in authority, presents a real uh, a really dangerous threat to political power, and that 's why philosophers have often got into a good deal of trouble so it 's important to remember that and also I think it, you know it 's good to you know get away from the idea of the philosopher as some kind of lofty you know noble intellect the philosopher is a yeah um a clown and uh but clowns are really important it turns out because clowns clowns tell you the truth
1: yeah and i guess in literature it's always been the clowns who have uh revealed the truth the clowns and the fools
0: exactly like king lear or wherever it might be it's the it's it's the clown that can tell the king the truth without being killed although Mm. lear's fool is killed but yeah
1: And I love that motto, philosophy kills. Um, I I remember a few years ago, my friend and I, we were were students. There was this highly, highly prominent and famous American philosopher who was invited to give a series of lectures in our university. We went to the first two and we were uh, really disappointed because we felt that what he was talking about was simply uh, holding the status quo. And then we did a little bit of research and we realized that he was a, He was given the Presidential Medal of Honor or a similar medal in the United States. And we said, well, there you go. People like Coroner West are never really decorated by presidents because that philosophy kills. Uh, Philosophers, as you have mentioned, rightly held in political establishments, anger because they try to change the the status quo.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that should be our obligation, not in a nasty way. In a in a in a, in a in I think in a in a decent and uh, open spirited way, in a spirit of you know actual debate. But um, yes, I think I mean Cornel West is a a wonderful example of a philosopher, and I think a lot of people were perplexed by the hostility which he had with regard to say Barack Obama. But it makes perfect sense, and um, but maybe Cornell will receive her presidential prize at some point who knows let's hope so and uh,
1: in your preface the preface of the book you also had this uh, wonderful sentence philosophy is not a solitary act it's a collective act because <laughs> it's traditionally it's been conducted in the academy or in the garden of epicurus as you mentioned mm-hmm. or socrates you know just talk to people out there in the market um so can you talk about that idea a bit
0: yeah there's there's a there's a Maybe there's the series of pieces in the book I'm proudest of. Um, maybe also because they were, they were written together and in one place and they were kind of the last things that I wrote that part of the book is a whole section called Athens in pieces, which are a series of pieces that I wrote in Athens in 2019. And it was a, I had a really good run and uh, I was getting a lot out of um, my time in Athens. And it was uh I met some fascinating people. Anyway, one thing that I got really interested in was um, Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum and also these schools. What was going on in these schools? Um, So one view of philosophy, the standard view of philosophy, is that the philosopher is alone in their oven or their little room in the Netherlands like Descartes and is um, in a world that's being ravaged by, by war, Uh, with a kind of metaphysical basis say the 30 years war the philosopher retreats on their own and um, tries to work out a basis for for certainty for a basis for knowledge and uh, all the rest of it and that's not wholly wrong but it overlooks the way in which philosophical activity has often been a a school activity a group activity and I'm very interested in 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 those um, in those schools because we we know very little about them. That's, that, 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 that's, that's a main source of interest. There was an academy. We know that it you was know, Plato's academy, but we don't know how it worked. We don't know. One thing that I got fascinated with when I was in Athens was um, what was in the library of the academy, what what texts were available, what papyri, what, uh, what astronomical instruments, what engineering knowledge was there, all of that. Because these would have been certainly not necessarily Plato's Academy, but Aristotle's Lyceum would have been the best research university in the world at that time, uh, because it was because he had Macedonian money to buy everything. And so it was all there. So what did they have? What did they do? Um, did they charge fees? What forms of instruction were going on? And did, you know, these people, Plato and Aristotle, actually write any of this? Were they writers or were they, was this some kind of collective activity of editing? And these are very uh, unstable questions and people that, you know, ancient philosophers and classicists often get quite irritated by this. But I've, you know, I know some people in, a couple of people in Athens who would insist that Plato wrote nothing, right? Of course not. Uh, He was involved, right? He was, maybe these were dialogues that were being had but they would have been written by somebody else and they would have been read aloud to a group of people. So the idea of a, a solitary philosophy as something which is produced in solitude is uh, I think at the very least limited. And also the idea of philosophy as something which is received in solitude, you know, that you, you, it's, it's, it's a one, it, it's, it's uh, a singular reader. It's also very limited. I think that interests me a lot that the, the philosophy as a group activity and how could we uh or could we think about that in relationship to educational institutions there was a period of time quite a long time ago now where i was trying to think about institutional forms of thinking and what we could do with that and how we could think more in more flexible interesting ways about institutions because i think we're rather limited we're, we're limited in mainly by the idea of the university uh, mm-hmm. with all the connotations that has and then you know it's it, like the private research institute and there's there's a lot of other options that are available we but we suffer from a great institutional a great impoverishment of insti- thinking about institutions and in particular how groups of uh, thinking people might might work together it's a very interesting topic i think
1: thank you um let's talk about the tragedy of uh violence that is a sketch one of the sketches is a sketch 19 the theater of violence and i think it's kind of relevant to what's going on in our society with the pandemic as well and also the social movements such as black lives matter which we'll talk about probably um you 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 have a great definition for violence that violence always has a history it is not one it is two so can you expand that idea please
0: yeah i mean this is something i borrowed from um um, a uh, historian, um, a cultural theorist called Robert Young, who I've always learned a lot from Robert's work, and um, he says that violence is a phenomenon that has a history. So violence is not a question of a single act, but it's always um, uh, it's always a question of a cycle of violence and counter violence. If we want to understand. The ph- understand the phenomenon so the standard view and you see this over and over again uh, the standard ideological view is there's something like peace right there's something like peace in the world and then there'll be people that resort to violence and those people that resort to violence have to be condemned uh, because they've they've brought violence they've destroyed uh, our peaceful world and um that's just wrong and one example of that that i give in the uh in the book, um, on the cycle of revenge, and then the piece on violence is uh, is 9/11, which from a certain ideological perspective, say like a kind of naive uh, a naive American perspective, um, you know things were going just fine, and then these crazy people f- flew these jets into uh, the World Trade Center. And if you read, as I did, you know the statements of Osama bin Laden, which are. Very interesting texts, very and very strange texts. I read them all, and it becomes clear that this wasn't an act of violence. This was an act of uh, counter violence against the violence, which was uh, the violence which the younger Zama Bin Laden had seen on the television in nineteen eighty-two, when the U.S. Navy and the Israelis were bombarding Beirut, right? and he, and so the younger Zama saw on television. Missiles going into towers, in this case, the towers on the, the seafront of Beirut. And that gave him an idea. Missiles into towers, missiles into towers. That would be a way to. So in a sense, to understand 9-11, you have to understand it in terms of a history of violence and counter-violence going all the way back. Iran would be another brilliant example of that. I mean, if you understand, you know, if we just if we stop everything with the Iranian revolution what happened, immediately afterwards, then we're we're nowhere towards understanding, you know, how all of that happened. We have to go back hundreds of years. At least we have to go back thoroughly over the last couple of centuries and the, uh, the, the way in which, you know, the the former colonial powers uh, intervened in that region with often disastrous effect for all sorts of material interests. So I think it becomes, it, it's it's compelling because you see that history is um history is always violent history is a cycle of violence and counter violence which flows all the way back and we have to comprehend that we have to uh understand that and the task of history i think is to to get some sense of uh of how that history plays out and that's um something which um you know uh uh let's say, oppressor peoples, whoever they might be, and they'll be different in different places and have different skin pigmentation in different places. But oppressor peoples are are usually wonderfully incurious about history because it worked out quite well for them, usually. And they're happy enough with the way things are. So in a sense, the task of, um, if you like, political opposition is a history lesson, always. And that's why for me, I think, I mean, philosophy is important. Theatre and literature are important, but history is is it's so important because it's um if you can if you can give people some possession of history, then you give them the means with which to examine their reality and possibly uh, change it. I feel strongly about that. And and your love of
1: literature also shines through in this uh, sketch as well, which is where you talk about the history of Greek tragedy. Which is a history of violence, and uh, you also mentioned that Greek tragedy provided a platform, or let's say, an, a, a, an avenue for, for the Greek to see how. Again, that's the same thing you just mentioned about history to see that, uh, to see the violence that they have created, uh, which was of their own doing. So, can you explain that, and also tell us if there is a modern equivalent for that tragedy? And the modern equivalent that uh, we can see also the 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 violence that we are incurring on other people.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the second question is hard. Uh, the first question is yeah, I mean yes. I mean it's um, the history of tragedy for reasons that are, are not are not evident, um, are not obvious. Rather, uh, is a history of violence that the stories that were told in the Greek tragedies, in particular, the obsession with the Trojan war, this is a history of violence and this history of violence, which at one level is a victory, a victory of the Greeks over the Trojans, but at the same level, a defeat of the Greeks, because with the victory over the Trojans, there's then a kind of massive decline in, in um, the power of the, uh, the Argives, the Achaeans, the people that we latterly call the Greeks. So in a sense that um, the, the, how I see something like Greek tragedy is that Greek tragedy is an, let's say, an aesthetic form. It's a modern term, but an aesthetic form, which is able to um, distill, to recount, and distill the history of violence from which that city emerged, and to and to hold it in front of our eyes in in the form of uh, of myth. Right, that's the other thing. It's not as if we're Greek tragedy isn't um, isn't journalism. It isn't you know. It isn't um, it isn't documentary. It isn't cinema verite. Anything like that. It is um, this strange combination of actual history and and myth in in a stylized form, which is able to present something of enormous power. And um, I think that um, if there's a a modern equivalent to that, you know, you you could say that, you know, that was what uh, the novel was doing in the 18th and 19th centuries and bits of the 20th century. But I think you'd have to say that, you know, um, something like cinema uh, at its best is able to do that for us now. It's the closest I can think of Uh, maybe really good theater if you can find it, but it's hard to find But cinema in the sense in which um, I mean, I'm a little bit of a, you know, a, Closet Shakespearean. So, um, you know, um, if we think about Shakespeare's history plays, they're, they're, they're plays of this historical period between about 100 years between Richard II and Richard III, interspersed with many, many Henrys. And um, Shakespeare recounts that history, but does it with a stylized, dramatic intensity it's also about the formation of a cover kind of a, a national myth right which is which could be questioned but the um but it's it's that it's it's that it's not as if the the naked bald t- truth is gonna is gonna do the job we need uh stylization we need things to be molded mannered um if you if if reality is presented to you directly you often miss it which is why art is important because it gives us an indirect apprehension of the reality, which in a sense we we can't face up to because it's too close. And um, when it comes to the Greek tra- tragedy,
1: you 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 mentioned me. Perhaps one of the modern equivalents is uh, is sports stadiums, which is in terms of scale, which is which provides a rule based system of violence alongside skills and expertise. I think I can. Uh, use that sentence to talk about football, which is, I know, a dear topic to you as well. It and is. I hope it doesn't throw you off the handle to know that I used to be a big fan of Manchester United in my teenage year, the years. When,
0: uh, as, long as, the, as long as it's the past tense.
1: Okay. Yeah, it, it is in the past, past 15, I guess <laughs> even more. <laughs> when Sir Alex Ferguson was the coach and, you know, they had Peter Schmeichel as a goalkeeper, a long mm-hmm. time ago it was. Uh, there's this paragraph that I love to read from, your, from one of the sketches in the book. And then you can also talk about football, what football teaches us. Okay. So you say that soccer gives us a lived experience of community with fellow fans. It provides a history for that experience and a robust feeling of identity, place, and belonging. Even when that belonging is virtual, circulating through television screens and across social media networks. Being a Liverpool fan is also about a set of values, solidarity, compassion, internationalism decency honor self-respect and respect for others even manchester united fans well sometimes <laughs> and you consider football or football soccer to be a ritualistic religion to you with a lot of gods and legends what can
0: football tell us about being a human um i think it's uh, for me the, the 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 bottom line or the headline um would be that you can't just feel good about football. Um, football is something which is where the experience of compromise, uh, how one is compromised by forces that are outside your control. You know, they would have been the forces of the, the fates in antiquity. Now it's the forces of the circulation of money, of vast amounts of capital, let's say, or, or political power. That the, You can't just feel good about football. football. Is, is an experience which is torn between um, the form of the game, which uh, in the words of Marcelo Bielsa, the um, coach of Leeds now, I think he, did, he said, football is a gesture at the service of beauty, which is a lovely phrase. I found these on YouTube clips in, in, uh, in Spanish that uh, a student of mine helped me translate and uh, a gesture at the service of beauty, yet, so the formal level is that at the material level, it's money and the circulation of money and often really and increasingly really dirty money. And, um, and I think you see, uh, you see fans torn between those, those two things um, day to day, week to week. So it's something you can't just feel good about. And football gives you a, a sense of um, belonging. It gives you a sense of... Uh, almost a tribal sense of, of who you are. Um, it, gives you an, uh, it gives you a series of enemies, right? Which become symbolic enemies, not genuine enemies. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to kill Manchester United fans. Uh, I'm happy that they exist. Um, um, and I envy their success, particularly, you know, in the 19, 1990s and, and the aughts. Um, so it's a sense in which there's a, there's a kind of healthy agonistic rivalry between different fan groups which which i find just interesting so in a sense that uh this is why i try and see football in terms of polytheism whereas um, you know we're, we're you know our cultures in particular the you know most of the people in the world let's say with the exception of uh much of the population of china um you know seem to officially sign up to one version of monotheism or the other. The monotheism, there's there's one version of truth, there's one God, there's one set of things that you should do. Um, That supplanted, in most cases, polytheism, the idea that there were local gods, and those local gods had their rituals, their things that you were meant to do and not to do, and you had to honour them and serve them and revere them, but other people had other gods. And it was fine that other people had other gods. These are our gods and you've got your gods, um, and then you, you get you know, wonderful examples of, say, you know, ancient colonialism. You know, what the Greeks and the Romans and the rest of them did—they didn't extinguish um, religions when they encountered them. They they embodied, they incorporated elements of them, and you had these weird syncretic forms of religion. So local religions would be adopted, transformed into a new form of life. So polytheism. It's interesting because you can have, you can say, these are, these are my gods. These are my heroes, you know, Dalgleish, whoever it might be, the list of, the list of gods is, is, is named back to, you know, Paisley and Shankly and that's our founding myth. And then, you know, 26 miles down the road, Manchester United fans have got their gods, their myths, their stories, and we can both have those beliefs. alongside each other without tearing each other to pieces. I think religion becomes really dangerous when it becomes universalistic. um, And when it becomes exclusivistic, it becomes incredibly dangerous. So the idea that there is a universal God, which speaks to one set of people rather than another set of people, and the other set of people really are people that shouldn't be given, let alone rights. They should be given life, whatever. This is, this is a disaster. Re- religion for me is, um, so my twisted way, my twisted, strange, idiosyncratic way, You know, I see football as a kind of living, you know, anthropological experiment um, or, or, or an experiment in the sociology of religion. In the spirit of someone like Durkheim, you know, when Durkheim was using all that research coming out of Australia in the 19th century, um, and, um, yeah, and you, can, uh, and you can do amazing things with it. You can have rational discussion around football in a way in which you can't about much else. Uh, people change their opinions around football. You have incredibly strongly held views, and then you'll, see, you'll, you'll receive an argument, some evidence, and you'll change your mind. You can have a, a wonderfully elaborate you know, conversation about football with an, a nine-year-old. Um, and, uh, and learn, a, learn a great deal, particularly about statistics and data and, um, and so on and so forth. So there's, so there's something wonderfully egalitarian about, about, about soccer as a, as a thing. I don't really see it as a sport. I see it more as a kind of a ritual activity, which, um, which large groups of people seem to be involved in. And its form is beautiful, and its material basis is money, Uh, on the one hand, nationalism on the other, and they're both pretty ugly. But we take both. We take the beauty with the ugliness. And we're not dupes at that level. We're not... So football fans are not stupid. They're not ignorant of what's going on. They know what's going on. So I think football has a kind of extraordinary um, social intelligence. Um, uh, And so, yeah, I, I think it should be taken more... And it is being taken more seriously and it does and it does it does unite the world often by leaving the americans out and that's that's kind of fun you know so it, it's it's the one sport where americans can feel like you know underdogs <laughs> and that, that kind of amuses me and um yeah although there's a lot of really good football in the us as well
1: yeah thank you and, and, and i never thought about football that way thank you um let me ask the one final question sure uh we're in the midst of a pandemic and signs of trouble grief loss and mortality have never been more visible in the past few decades at least and a lot of people have been uh trying to console themselves some by you know going to religion some by going to literature music i know some friends of mine who who were not really into philosophy but they started reading books such as consolation of philosophy Mm -hmm. um
0: what is the role of philosophy or philosopher in these trying times well consolation in a way i mean there's a you know boethius' consolation of philosophy is a very important text and a very important continuously read text right? uh, in the, in the west and in the east um, um and it's um there is a consolation and a consolation based on um for me the pandemic was I mean, horrible and blah, 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 and all of that. But it was fantastic in the sense in which suddenly everybody was plunged into the same situation that I'm in, and I've been encouraging people to be in all of my professional life and living with a kind of intense anxiety. And that anxiety, which can take the form of fear, fear of infection, fear of a new virus, which was real, but the underlying anxiety is – a phenomenon which is really has to be taken seriously not just diagnosed or or dulled through intoxication and medication but but thought through and uh used to enable you to kind of open up you know open up your your mind and i think so the, the last piece in the book is a is a piece called i always forget what it's called because it came out under two titles it was a uh, Let's see. Let me let me get this absolutely right because I don't want to screw it up. Oh, now I'm looking at the index. Our fear, our trembling, our strength. Our fear, our trembling, our strength. They ended up calling it to philosophise to learn how to die, which is fine. It was a better headline for them. But the the idea there was really that the taking this anxiety, taking this background anxiety, and and seeing it as. Yeah, this is where I would think about liberation, right? I think, in a sense, how you how you shift shifting the way in which anxiety is is understood is a kind of liberation. This is not a disorder. This is not something that needs to be um, eradicated. This is what human beings do. That basic mood of anxiety is something that can open us up um, and and open us up to. To other people as well. And I do see that as the the role of philosophy. I mean, crudely, that philosophy is, uh, at least for me, it was a way of um, making sense of the anxiety I was feeling and giving it a voice, giving it a name and giving it a shape. And um, when I was, you know, 20, in my late 20s, when I started teaching, that's why I thought, I would do that's why i wanted to teach philosophy because it wasn't just me there were lots of people in that situation and and it, for, for people in that situation reading whoever it might be plato's dialogues or or boethius can be fantastically liberating and empowering and um that's um, that's what we're meant to be doing i think and, and it, that is not an that's not an answer that is that but it gives you a way of exploring the question, a way of, a way of thinking it through. And that's, uh, that's enough for me. And so philosophy, I think, does that powerfully. So therefore, the pandemic, I think, has been oddly very good for philosophy. But then the question now is really, are the effects, uh, is, it, is this a temporary blip? Is this just a, you know, a road bump in the normal you know, conduct of life? And we'll all go back to how it was before. Or have things really changed? And I'd like to think that they've changed, but I'm not sure that they have but I'd like to think that they've changed because if we just go back to the, the forms of amnesia and uh, that we were practicing before, then I think we're going to be in big trouble. That, to say that, I mean the pandemic is throwing up all sorts of weird social and political phenomena which need to be really you know thought through. I mean you know the fact that we're able to or we're willing to kind of separate populations into vaxxers and anti-vaxxers and you know stuff like that which is pretty dramatic so um so i think two cheers for the pandemic uh when it comes to philosophy
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much professor simon critchie for your time i absolutely enjoyed this conversation about your book
0: pleasure thank you very much for having me and uh thank you for taking the time as well